0: Hello, and welcome to the Leaders of B2B podcast. On this show, we bring you interviews with leading executives at today's rapidly growing B2B tech companies. We dissect the stories, strategies, and journey of CEOs, COOs, CMOs, and more as they share their professional journey. Tune in each week for new episodes from today's leaders. This episode is brought to you by Content Allies. We help B2B tech companies build and run revenue-generating podcasts. We set you up with weekly interviews with your ideal prospects and strategic partners. You show up and have engaging conversations, we handle everything else. Learn more about launching your podcast at contentallies.com. This episode is
1: brought to you by Ad One Zero, where we do lead to close sales execution for B2B services companies with a technology flair. If you're looking to scale your company from six figures to seven figures of revenue, talk to Ad One Zero. Hey leaders, welcome back. This is Ledge again, and I'm here with Rajesh Parthasarathy, almost nailed it the first try. I'm leaving that in there anyway. So CEO and founder of Mentis. Rajesh, thank you for coming in, and uh you made me laugh before this so i'm I'm totally gonna blame you because i almost i almost nailed this but but please introduce yourself and your company because I know you can do it better justice than I did
2: thanks ledge. Honestly, you did a much better job of my name than a lot of people do so <laughs> you're, you're good
1: <laughs> you probably heard this before I know yeah
2: <laughs> yeah i such... heard I've heard many versions of my of my own name <laughs> so um Thank you. Thank you for the opportunity. I'm glad to be here. Uh, I've listened to a lot of your podcasts and they're all very interesting. So I'm hoping to add my little bit into your stream. Mentis is a it's a data protection company. We we call what we do GPS for enterprise data. The G stands for governance, P stands for privacy, and the S stands for security. I, in my past life, I started my career off as, a, as an auditor um, and then After a while I was implementing some uh, software products and I realized that there was a huge gap in controls for um, in the large ERP systems. So I built some um, software solutions for auditing um, Oracle ERP, Oracle eBusiness Suite, which is now owned by Oracle Corporation through a series of acquisitions. It's called Oracle's uh, GRC product line. And then I'd also built some products that are now um, Informatica's, information lifecycle management products. So I, uh, I decided to start my own journey and uh, I started Mentis uh, quite a while back um, and I wanted to focus on data security, starting at the simple question as why do developers and database administrators who have a job to do with data, but do not need access to sensitive data, why do they have so much access? That was the question that I was trying to uh, solve towards. Um, but when I started the company, which was way back in 2004, that really was not a question in anybody else's mind. Uh, so we did some consulting, and we did a, we went along, and then um, as a software product to address um, enterprise-level sensitive data access, understanding where an organization's sensitive data is, we built software products, and we've been since 2014 we have transformed into a software product company, and then now we are actually in the process of completing our transformation into a. Subscription-based software license company. So that that is a quick introduction to Mentis.
1: Yeah, that's awesome. That journey, gosh, I've heard that story so much. The conversion from service company to product company, you know the, and I I know a lot of companies that have you know really uh, fallen victim to, you know the uh, the siren song of MRR when they were very successful services and consulting style companies and just had to build a product and go to MRR. So if in fact you are finishing that journey, uh, gosh, I know people would love to know about that because that is a difficult shift and uh, a lot of people want it and not a lot of people make it happen.
2: For me, it was more of a necessity, right? Um, I wanted to start a software product company, but the market was not ready, right? um, we did some beta testing. We had some early adopter customers, but really the market was not ready for me to actually build out a software product and run it. So we just waited patiently. Uh, we waited through the through the financial collapse of the 2008-2009s, and then as the market started to start understanding solutions, then we had the years of knowledge, uh, so it was easy. And I'd built products before, so it was very easy for us to trigger into the product uh, product world but the 2014 version of mentis was more a perpetual software license uh, which now we have transformed into a subscription license based uh, software company but what we've also done is we have really brand name customers right like we have one of the top two swiss banks as a customer we have one of the top two grocery chains in the world Uh, we have one of the top three credit rating agencies as a customer we have the top three Ivy leagues as customers right so these are the and uh, one of the top three restaurant chains in the U.S. So these are brand name customers. And we've done this all in a very, very, because of that slow burn, because of taking the years to actually develop the solution to go. We haven't done the traditional way of um, raise and spend uh, and keep raising more money. Uh, Instead, we have stayed away from that world. Uh, Instead, we have been building it on the basis of customer needs. And what you'll notice, and this is something that I found out yesterday and I'm super proud of, Uh, is Gartner runs this thing called Peer Insights. So they do some um, anonymous feedbacks from uh, their customers on all the software that they use. So last year in 2020, we were a customer's choice in the data masking space by our customers, right? Uh, And it was just two companies. One is Mentis, uh, which is very small. And then another company, which is about the same size, it's called Microsoft. You might have heard of them
1: oh yeah. Uh, yeah. about the same size uh, right
2: yeah. yeah about the same size right um, they might just have a few extra letters in their name that's it so we both won customer choice last year and now we've been tracking and we're seeing what happens in 2021 do we still qualify are our reviews still good enough and what we just noticed yesterday is in the last 12 months in the areas that we compete in which is dynamic data masking static data masking and the ability to find sensitive data we have a hundred percent willingness to recommend. Right, and we've, really been, we've been we've yeah. been we've been building all of this basically bootstrap, basically on the basis of what customer wants. So the one good thing about letting our customers dictate where we go, dictate our roadmap, is one it is not built in hubris, not built in me thinking I know what the market needs. It's built on actual customer need. But the result of that is we get really good feedback from our customers, so that we can keep building on it. Right? So it's, there's just one thing that. Um, We've kind of worked ourselves backwards into, and it kind of is working work, working for us.
1: Yeah, I love that, and that that story resonates with me a lot. It's just that long term path of getting paid essentially for a number of years of you know customer discovery, really, and just becoming domain experts. And that just cannot be accomplished in the you know uh, spend and buy up market share type of methodology. You, you just simply wouldn't get there. Your roadmap would be you know, entirely different if you set out with a different goal there. And and then you end up with uh, an interesting, different challenge than when I hear folks have achieved the the fully customer-driven type of roadmap is to whom do you listen to build core features in because you don't want to fork your product all over the place. Uh, So you have to, you know, thread that needle of uh, we're driven by our customer needs and wants, uh, but we also have a core product. You can't have, uh, you know, one code base for every, every customer. So agility, flexibility, uh, extensions, add-ons, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You don't want to customize everything. So how do you, how do you handle that? Like which needs rise to the top?
2: We only have one code base. Uh, we do not customize the solution for a, for one customer. Uh, if a specific uh, customer want something special, we don't have them pay for it. We They just pay for the maintenance and the software contracts and all of that. Then uh, when they say, we would like this extra feature, that is something that we build in-house and then put it into our product so all of our customers get it. So that's one way we make sure that we don't have, even though the customer is paying for it through the maintenance contracts, what we get is uh, the ability to get features and functionalities that we are building that will not let us become shelfware
1: yeah right
2: Right? so it is it is something that somebody will actively use and if one customer uses it so what if it is a, a donut shop versus an ivy league university right if a donut shop has a need to protect sensitive data then the university also would need it so the features will not go to waste they just get built into the product and then all of our customers benefit and because of that because they keep seeing this innovation that keeps happening maybe not all of my customers realize the innovation is not because of mentis, it's actually because of customers. But end of the day, it it benefits all of us. It's almost like a community without people knowing they're part of a community. It's like they're all giving us ideas to make the products feel better for themse- themselves.
1: And any particular, maybe it's maybe it's horizontally arranged, I guess, enough from the needs standpoint that in fact, everybody, regardless of industry or regardless of sort of, uh, specifics you know you actually can address and, and introduce features that wouldn't always be the case right you'd have sometimes that this a different industry or type of client would in fact want a different customization you just don't you don't run into that or you actually are able to uh, engineer with agility enough to to make
2: it applicable to all uh, that is brilliant the way you asked it uh, and i'll explain why i think that so always the reason or the need for security and privacy and governance, that's not a vertical issue, right? That's a horizontal issue. Anybody that invests in data, once you get past a little bit of a threshold, you're going to have to invest in protecting your sensitive information, right? Either because there is a legislation or a standard or like the GDPR type regulation that mandates it or because it's really the right thing to do, right? So when you go there, then it doesn't matter whether it is uh, again an Ivy League university or a hospital chain or a restaurant, you might have different needs, but end of the day, the need to protect the data is universal. So what we do is we start there, we start with that, and then we say, what sort of information is important to all of these customers, right? We build a superset of what we call data classifications. Data classifications in in the mentis world are just basically data elements, so first name, last name, social security number, address, uh, your hair color, uh, in our case, not really, uh, or your eye color.
1: Your former hair color, right? <laughs>
2: <laughs> your, your eye color or your or your clothing size or your shoe size. So this is all important from a privacy standpoint, all from the perspective of if you're going to protect an individual's data, You need to identify all of those aspects of information that can identify an individual, and then you protect it. Then on top of it, uh, and we make that not something that is customizable, but we make it extensible so a customer can add their own data classifications. So let's say I go to a university and we've built all these privacy regulations um, based on privacy regulations. Let's say we built these data classifications. And then a university says, I want to go ahead and address canteen card number. Right, That our application won't provide that out of the box, but they might have something specific. Maybe like most U.S. universities did, they used uh, social script number as a student identifier like in the 50s. So maybe they still have canteen card numbers that are still, for, for some older students, they're still using social script number, whatever reason, right? So then they can build their own data classifications within our application, and that becomes metadata inside our application rather than a change to the code. Right.
1: Right. So we we can
2: extend it uh, along the way. So we have a Swiss bank customer that has 71 data classifications. Uh, We have universities that have 50 uh, or out of the box has about 70 data classifications and then customers can build their own and extend.
1: Yeah. And you make a great point. Like everybody pay attention to that, you know, sort of you can make things that are extensible if you architect for extensibility. You, you essentially can then localize to your business vocabulary based on what you need to do. But many software solutions, and I would argue even many process and business solutions, uh, tend to impose a set of uh, taxonomy or vocabulary upon the client and make them do the shadow translation work, and I would argue that that's a very bad UX and probably a bad customer success move.
2: Yeah, see, for me, what um, helped, and this is not what I thought helped, but this is what has helped uh, that in hindsight, uh, is I told you, my I, I started my career as an auditor, not as an IT person. So when I started building software products, even, even in my previous iterations, when I was building the Oracle's GRC product line or Informatica's ILM product line, it was clear and evident to me that I did not know any, everything, right? I knew a few things and then I could corroborate information from a lot of sources. So I didn't want to back myself into a corner by assuming I know everything and building to it. So I needed the escape classes. I needed ways in which my ex- my application can expand beyond my little piece of knowledge at that moment in time, because even that changes, right? What I know today will not be what I know tomorrow. And what I knew 10 days ago is already obsolete in some ways. So I needed to make it extensible. I needed to engineer our solutions or architect our solutions in a way that builds in other people's knowledge and not go off of my hubristic belief that I know everything. This is how the software should be. This is where we need to go. So that has kind of helped us a little bit and keep expanding it. And our early customers are also, they were all over the place, right? Like if you look at a, a restaurant chain and then you compare it with an Ivy League university and then to a Swiss bank. They almost have nothing in common except that they've got data, except except that they've got large enterprise databases and large file systems, and they've got data. So then, other than that, everything else is variable. So we had to make sure we didn't, like what you were saying, we didn't want to write different lines of code for different customers. So we made it as architecturally open as possible.
1: which is a real design challenge, you know, designing for that level of future extensibility is like you could say right now I want to meet needs that I know exist. Uh, But designing for and into the core of your application, things that you don't know are going to happen later, you have really this sort of massive level of abstraction that you need to design for. And it it takes a hell of a lot of uh, engineering expertise to do that. So I talk a little bit about, you know, building teams and I imagine, you know, managing a large workforce of of engineers and product people and, you know, all those things that that would typically go into a a software
2: experience then. So I had some experience in building products, uh, right from a product management standpoint. And then what was key is uh, I hired someone called Padma. She lives in Alpharetta, Georgia, about uh, 15 years ago now. Uh, and we've been working together, well, and it's, um, uh, you know, sometimes when you see uh, players that kind of fundamentally know what the other is going to do. So if you watch, like, LeBron James making a no-look pass to someone or a Magic Johnson, so he fundamentally knows instinctively where the other player is going to be. So it's like that with Padma. And then slowly we started building the team out. Uh, and everybody that we bring in, we don't look for... Um, like the brand names. We don't look for the top performers. We just look for people that are intelligent and don't have a specific um, specific set of skills, but are able to mold themselves into any skill that we need them to, right? So we were lucky that everybody that early on that came on, we just gave them the ability to go learn some things. Um, and then we hired a developer in India uh, called Srinath, and he is all, also the same way. Some of the code that we had written in the U.S. over like a year, uh, Srinath took over and rewrote in a week. And he he did not know how to code in that language, but he learned that language and basically rewrote it. So we found those um, pinch hitters that basically uh, don't have a specific position but can play any position at any point of time. So sometimes it's like an island of misfit toys, but it's uh, the synergy... The team strength of it is great is that we we all trust each other, we all enjoy working with each other. and we do a lot of things that are very non-traditional, right? So we are involved in everybody's lives. So if uh, somebody's getting married, then everybody gets involved in helping with the marriage. So it's more or less it's more it's it's almost very very dorky for me to say. it's a, it's we're we're a band of friends more than we are colleagues in a way. So that that helps a lot And that from a team building standpoint, and just now, after the pandemic, we've also announced a stock pool, so everybody participates. We're going to start three hundred and sixty reviews so that we we help each other grow uh, together so it's uh, it's been it's been interesting. So we have a bunch of people that are not that are not superstars on paper, but when combined with other groups of people that we all work together, everyone uh, performs at a superstar level because remember the name that I told you if Microsoft is a customer's choice in data masking and Mentis is. Mentis's entire revenue over its life is less than what Microsoft probably spends on toilet paper in a year, right? <laughs> just realistically, right? That that's yeah. basically where we stand. But how do we, how do we compete with with that type of a budget? That's that's because I have engineers making solutions. We don't have salespeople. We have engineers selling solutions. So customers don't buy things that are forced to them just because somebody needed to make a. a a top line number but because the the, there's a product fit to what their needs are and then we keep evolving so that's it's a very non-traditional way of going about things but it's uh, somehow working for us all these years
1: (laughs) yeah well you know i talk to a lot of entrepreneurs who have been through a number of businesses and sort of have collected good people along the way and you have some of that you know sort of instinctive mind reading which i believe it is a competitive advantage when you can do that not having to realign to your right. you know co-founder and something like that so could certainly relate to that and and then you know i think that the team based you know cultural approach is so important and if you can anchor that way and you can figure out a way to add new people to that mm-hmm. and to to be intentional about Uh, training up on how do we act like ourselves you know so essentially when you have that type of a culture and this family type of environment you don't often get to add new family members Uh, and and when you do you have to be really really careful about it because the flip side is that if you ever need to fire a family member Uh it's really much worse (laughs) so yeah yeah
2: that that is very insightful um Because that is basically the challenge, right? Like, how do you bring someone in? It's almost like the train is already running and then you have to bring someone to jump into that and somehow immediately become a part of that culture. And that is, of course, even more difficult in the pandemic, right? Like, um, even if you have people going out for, for drinks or going out for dinner and hanging out, going to a movie together, you can kind of build up that camaraderie and build up that family atmosphere. But if you're in some other state and you don't see them, it's very hard to build that type of camaraderie. Uh, But I've been working from home for the last 17 years. So I kind of know what that is. So we find like WhatsApp has been a godsend for us. So we do a lot of WhatsApp groups and we chat and we keep engaged. We watch movies together. We do some some stuff, but it is a lot more challenging than being in an office environment, especially to build out that culture, build out that camaraderie bring someone in new and make them subscribe to this way of doing things. Because most people would come with some traditional organization, right? Like being being a seller in an Excel spreadsheet, and now suddenly it's all free form and then they can do whatever and fit whatever and, and put forth ideas and, and make make an impact. It takes some time. And the pandemic has made it more challenging, but we, we are doing okay. We are, we are, we are hiring people again um, and we should be growing again this year. So we are hoping, uh, at some point of time, the pandemic will be over, and we can bring people back to the office and help us build out that camaraderie again.
1: It is a huge thing. I mean, adding adding people to a team that you will never <laughs> be in the same room with. I mean, internationally, uh, businesses have been doing distributed workforces for you know a long time. For some reason, this feels so much more acute. I know in our own business, we have team members that you know are on the other side of the earth. That is even before all this, it would be unlikely that we'll ever hang out, you know? And so you, you sort of learn how to communicate those things across video, at least until we all get, uh, you know, uh, I don't know, VR lenses and stuff that uh, (laughs) allow us to (laughs) hang out and drink virtual beers together. But um, yeah, that makes, that makes a lot of sense. And I'm curious then for you, you know, as, as, CEO, maybe you have to take off the product hat and put on the finance hat. And sometimes you have to put on the operations hat and even the HR hat and, you know, so all those things. And the more people you have, the more, you know, challenges and functions that you need to play as the, at the as the integrator, thus also losing contact a little bit with probably you love being a product person, you know? And so I wonder, how's that journey for you is I, I see Founders, as they grow, sometimes struggle with giving up the thing that they loved doing and not being able to you know, kind of get the balance right.
2: Yeah, that, that is absolutely correct. And um, for me, I am a product guy. And for me, uh, like I've told you, 99% of our ideas comes from real customer needs, right? So now I've grown to a point where I don't have that direct customer uh, contact. So what I did uh, to solve that is Padma, whom I told you joined me a long time back, she used to run development for us. So what we did was we moved her to be head of customer success. So she gets that customer conversations. And since she and I have this great working relationship with each other, it is easy for her to tell me new feature ideas. right? So then she knows what is chef, she knows what needs to be boiled up. So that way, it's uh, it's almost like I've extended myself a little bit To get customer feedback, but almost remember I was telling you we feel like a band of friends. We extend that to our customers also. Uh, End of the day, it's about people, right? Like I don't want to make money um, and and then not worry about the people that I work with. I don't want to make money and worry about the people I work with, and then screw the people that are actually giving me the money. So that band of friends extends. So my customers also, almost all of them call me. Sometimes when I travel to other cities, I go to uh, dinner at my customers' homes. It's I've extended that whole uh, friendship concept everywhere uh, so that instead of it being just pure commercial, let's have fun together. Let's build this business together. Let me solve your problem in a way that both of us benefit. And so I have a customer here in the city, an Ivy League customer, and he has no problems calling me any time of the day or night and telling me what feature I should build next, telling me where my product is not meeting his expectation. And they shared it with us and helped me grow the business together right and then he's referring us to other customers wherever he hears a need he's referring us because we are invested in his success because we cannot let him down because he's a friend we don't want to let down a friend and therefore it kind of helps uh overall i know this is all corny as heck <laughs> but
1: no it's not at all it just it one it makes me wonder. You know, it, the first thing that popped into my head is like you know, scaling a business is hard enough, but scaling yeah. friendship. You know, there is just a, a required person-to-person, probably one-to-one right. type of relationship in uh, that kind of vibe. So you're taking on that, I don't want to say burden, but that uh, responsibility really of of waving the friendship flag then. At some point, it runs into a, a scaling problem where not yeah. everybody can be your friend. You know, there's a. They, you're we, absolutely we correct. Point.
2: I think I can manage that to this point. Uh, I think I can manage it a little bit more, uh, but once I get to like 200 customers, it becomes large. Even now, I don't. I don't have personal contacts with a lot of my customers. That's kind of gone away. But everybody that was a customer until like say 2019, they are all friends. They are all people that I know, plus a few more that have added along the way. And it will become a scaling challenge. But if someone asked me, "What do I do for fun?", I really don't have an answer. I said, "This, mentis. This is all I do. This is my what I do for a job. This is what I do for fun. I don't have anything else. I don't play golf. Maybe I watch some TV. Uh, but other than that, this is it. So I'm in touch with everyone, and it's th- that's the fun part for me. It's the it's the people people part of the equation, and problem solving. So it's um." You're absolutely right. I think we're going to run into a scale problem, but what I'm hoping is I'm inculcating that form of uh, relationship building to everyone in the organization so that it just isn't me that is creating these friendships and the friend networks, but everybody starts thinking that way and everybody starts acting that way. So that way, then we, we have a little bit more ability to scale rather than being one horsepower.
1: So how do you write the friendship playbook for everybody else?
2: Yeah, just watch and learn. There is nothing else to do. And Everybody's <laughs> different, right? Like I become a friend in a different way than someone else might become. But if the core concept is the same, the core concept is don't let them down. They've trusted you. They've put their name on the line by signing the contract and selecting us instead of selecting the really big names in the marketplace, right? People that I compete with, IBM, Informatica, Oracle, Microsoft. If you're choosing Mentis instead of those big names, that customer has already taken a chance on us, right? So now we have to do it's a smart choice. Of course it's a smart choice. But we also need to make sure it is the smart choice. <laughs> right, right, right. We to, right. We have to jump in and, and make sure that their smart choice is really the smart choice. Sure.
1: Yeah. And if you've ever been a small provider, you know, you know, the old jokes, nobody ever got fired for buying IBM or nobody ever got right. fired for, you know, paying for just the big name thing because Absolutely. it's the default safe safe choice, you know, in right. the same way that you might think. Uh, having a traditional job is, is safe. You know, <laughs> yeah. It may or may not be, but it has the idea there. So yeah, you're always as a smaller brand up against, you know, the behemoths there. And but, so you would say then that the differentiation is not just the performance of the software, which probably is true. Uh, but right. it's also that relationship based, uh, selling management, you know, experience there. And, uh, that's a huge part then of your brand.
2: Yeah, absolutely. That's what we think. And then um, whenever it goes, uh, our sales conversation goes into a customer reference, we don't lose from there, right? So that that also helps in the, in the community that we've built. And these are all long-term. So part of, like you're saying, the part of the brand is, we're not in a brand new space, right? Like we're in a space that has been around for a while. And that is evident in the players that are in the space. IBM and Informatica and Microsoft. So everybody has tried something, right? Like it's it's almost difficult for us to see a company that's been around a long time to have not tried some form of data masking on their own. So they've either tried to do it themselves and it's not worked. And then they've gone to the big names because of the marketing budgets. And then that's not worked. And then they look for a solution and then they find Mentis. So politically, already I'm fighting a battle of the money that has been spent. Right, So now they have to spend new money, and but new money on an unknown quantity. So then we have to be extra cautious to make sure that decision is a final decision. I've got stories where we've been the sixth company somebody tried. Uh, there are two different organizations. One is a software product company based out of D.C. Another is a medical device manufacturer based out of California. They had tried everybody. And for their particular use case, the big names didn't work. And then they try Mentis because what well, you know what? We've gone through the list. So there's this lit name. So might as well just try these guys also. And we win there. And then we build this long-term relationship with them because our software works and they they trust that we sold them something that works, not, not a sales ploy, but actual product capability. So it kind of just um becomes part of the brand, like you're saying, is. We are not easy to find, but when you find us, we really solve your problem. And when we solve your problem, we stay committed to making sure you succeed because that's how we succeed.
1: It is definitely the long, hard path to get, you know, into a a meaningful market position. And, you know, you look back over the 17 years, I'm sure you go, I've been doing this like a long time, right? You know, (laughs) um, ultimately it, it came up with the best answer, which is really where you would expect to be with the, you know, the mas- mastery principles, right? Like how many 10,000 hours of mastery have you now baked into the culture? You can't manufacture that. Um, and uh, that's just simply what you would expect to happen when, when done well. So here's a question I, and then, uh, you know, I, and I don't mean to that this is not the kind of news you would break on somebody's podcast, but maybe generally speaking, you've built a couple of products, you said got acquired and companies that that got acquired. And, and I wonder then, you know, it's like you are going to in, in this type of successful environment, you know, ultimately attract that kind of attention. And so I've always been told, you know, build the company that you don't want to sell. And maybe, maybe you're doing that. But how does that? How does that play out to you? Like, hey, you know, someday there's there's an exit plan, and especially when you're building the family culture.
2: Yeah, um, we've had uh, acquisition interest over the years, and a lot of acquisition interest this year. Um, but some of them we push back because it's just not. I'm not opposed to an exit, right? I'm I'm completely open to an exit. It um, if an acquisition will serve our ideas um, better, no problem. Let's go for it. So it has to be a strategic exit. right now I'm not hurting for cash and I'm not I'm not I'm, I'm not even trying to raise cash so I can just build the business uh, on its own. but if there is an exit if the exit is strategic, sure no problem um, but I'm in no rush. I would rather partner with someone see how it works and then and then grow on so there have been there has been some acquisition interest this year as well and I've talked to all of them and said uh, if if you would be interested in Oeming my software, I'm more willing to talk to you, and then let's see, figure out how this works, and then let's talk about an acquisition later. Let's not just talk about an acquisition on the first day. So let's let's meet, let's have a drink, let's ha- let's date for a few weeks, and then let's figure out if you're going to get married or not. So it's it's part of the game, right? It's part of how organizations are going to exit. I'm not uh, delusional. I'm not thinking I'm going IPO. I'm not thinking this is something my grandchildren will run. That it's not that software markets are different. Our time in the sun is now. It's taken a long, winded path to get here. Uh, But once we are here, I want to bask in it for a little bit. And then when the right partner shows up with the right intent, sure, why not? Is that the same
1: thinking pattern that, uh, I don't know, 30 years ago, Rajesh would have have thought? Or has that evolved from the experiences?
2: Yeah, I don't think I was ever intent... I was... I don't think I ever wanted into any get rich quick scheme, right? I wasn't trying to turn a quick buck for me. Overall happiness is more important that I can be with people. I can help people influence people's lives and then money comes on its own. So it's um, money was never been the driver, but I'm not, and it's not far away, but it's primarily not money. So I've never looked at get rich quick schemes. I've never looked at, let me start a company and fundraise, 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 fundraise and exit. And not create enough value for anybody but except for my bank account that's never been anything that's interested me by the way 30 years ago i was in diverse
1: oh well okay not not not
2: really not really i'm just joking around i tell people i'm 27.
1: Um, yeah right of course we all are yeah (laughs) again yeah oh that's awesome man well i could do this all day you're a lot of fun. I, lo- I love the insights. Uh, maybe, maybe give me a, a wrap on uh, you know sort of the future vision, you know, next few years, kind of thing, and, and we'll wrap it up there.
2: Well, thanks, Leds. It's been uh, wonderful. It's been a great conversation, and kudos to you for building this up. I think there is a lot of momentum you've built in this whole process, so that's great. I'm honored to be part of your uh, list of uh, podcasts here. So, what you can expect from Mentis is we are going to keep slaying champions, right? Like we are, um, we call ourselves the mentis pride. We will be small, but we will be nimble and we will pack a punch that's uh, stronger than anyone else. You will keep seeing us at the top of the leaderboards on any analyst or any customer review sites. uh, And we will keep innovating. We will keep building our solutions because end of the day, all we are doing is we are answering customer needs uh, rather than thinking of stuff ourselves you will probably not see big announcements of Mentis raising hundreds of millions of dollars and having a billion dollar valuation because that's really not the driver. So more innovation, more uh, newer things, uh, expansion of our footprint into newer data sources all around protecting data and helping organizations protect it a little bit more easily. Uh, That's what you'll hear from Mentis. Um, And at some point you'll hear of a successful exit, but that's not what we're chasing at the moment.
1: (laughs) Awesome. I love it. I love it. Rajesh, if uh, listeners want to get in touch with you or people want to do business, you know, do, what are the channels that you prefer to be contacted on?
2: LinkedIn. I'm uh, I'm I'm on LinkedIn a lot. Our website is mentisinc.com and LinkedIn, easy to find me, Rajesh Pathasar the Mentis, and can surely be contacted from there.
1: Awesome. Well, hey, thanks for thanks for coming and being on here. I, I really appreciate it. Great, great insights. Totally enjoyed it.
2: Thank you. Thanks, Ledge.
0: Thank you for listening and we hope you enjoyed the show. You can see the show notes and more links from today's episode at leadersofb2b.com.